service. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. Never has there been a more extreme form of musical rebellion than Norwegian black metal. The genre's founding band, Mayhem, its sister act, Burzum, and supporting cast of musicians with names like Necro Butcher, Hellhammer, and Dead, horrified Norway with supreme acts of terror, including murder, suicide, church burnings, grave desecrations, and even cannibalism. And by the time the ashes settled, numerous band members would be dead or in jail, convicted of arson and or murder. And a new generation of young metalheads would find their way to Satanism through blast beats and dead notes. Some of those blast beats and dead notes amounted to great music. The music you heard at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Vienna Waltz Accordion MK2. I played you that loop because I can't afford the license for Jump by Criss Cross. And why would I play you that specific slice of prepubescent backward pant cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on June 6, 1992. And that was the day that Varg Vikernes, a.k.a. Count Grishnak, mastermind behind the black metal band Burzum and one-time bass player for Mayhem, set off a string of church burnings and other acts of satanic rebellion that would terrorize an otherwise peaceful nation. On this episode, waltzing Viennese accordions, backward pant cheese, Mayhem, Satanic Rebellion, and Count Grishnak. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. When Bo Diddley released his song, Who Do You Love, in 1956, it was heard by a country reeling in the shockwaves of rock and roll. Bo sang about walking for miles on barbed wire, cobra snakes used for neckties, a house made from rattlesnake hide, a chimney made from human skulls. Parents, teachers, and squares everywhere warned of the new music's influence on the clean-cut youth of Eisenhower's post-war conformist America. Surely this rebellious-sounding noise would cause kids to grow their hair, smoke reefer, get pregnant, worship Satan, and die. And the squares were right. That's exactly what happened. A decade later, kids were uniformly long-haired, smoking copious amounts of dope and taking the pill. By 1969 and into the 70s, they were sympathizing with the devil at Altamont and burning their bras in Times Square. And in the 1980s, cocaine, crack, and AIDS would claim countless amounts of young lives. Finally, in 1991, a heavy metal musician from Norway 
would go Bo Diddley one better. It wouldn't be a chimney he'd make out of a human skull. It would be a necklace made out of the skull of his recently deceased friend and bandmate. Bo Diddley's lyric sounds tame now, but it only took a mere 35 years before its influence was brought to life in horrific fashion. Rebellion is metastatic. One generation's rebellion is another generation's norm. The line in the sand of what is and isn't acceptable gets redrawn with each new generation. Bo Diddley was a descendant of bluesman Robert Johnson, who hack-rock journalists will eagerly tell us sold his soul to the devil. And Diddley's voodoo-esque braggadocio went on to inspire countless classic rockers, including satanic sympathizers Led Zeppelin, whose unabashed admiration for known Satanist Aleister Crowley and melding of steroidal Delta Blues made it rain royalty checks, thus inspiring another band from England named Venom to take it one step further, to full-on devil worship. With song titles like In League with Satan, Leave Me in Hell, and A Thousand Days in Sodom, Venom then went on to influence an entirely new generation of metal bands like Metallica, Slayer, and Testament, until finally inspiring a new subgenre of heavy metal called black metal. Black metal was started by Norwegian teenagers unable to stand the strains of conformity, boredom, anonymity, and long, dark winters. Norway, a small constitutional monarchy, went through a brief Viking phase during its adolescence, flirted with fascism in young adulthood, and eventually, settled lazily into a type of democratic socialism during middle age. The country, though small, is one of the world's richest. The state takes care of its own. Government bureaucracy employs 30% of the nation. Disability pensions for the unemployed are easy to come by. There isn't a lot of poverty, not a lot of income disparity. The crime rate is low, and punishments for the crimes that do get committed are lenient. Historically, there's not a lot to get pissed off about because there's not a lot that goes on in Norway. The country's greatest cultural export is frozen fish. Norway is kind of like Europe's answer to an American flyover state. What I'm trying to say is that if you're a Norwegian teenager, you're probably bored, and even worse than that, you're probably bored without a whole lot to rebel against. How does the saying go? idle hands of the devil's workshop. Without overt social injustice, Norwegian teenagers look to their heritage for a target to rebel against. Inspired by Venom, Bathory, and a growing group of satanic-inspired heavy metal bands in the 1980s, Norwegian teenagers saw in their country's Christian heritage a reason to rebel. Christian societies preach morality. So worshiping Satan is just about the strongest form of rebellion one can take. Mix in nihilism, Nazism, ancient Norse Viking mythology, paganism, blistering blast beats, and speaker-shredding power chords, and you've got a strong elixir of teenage angst. Black metal became a thing on August 16, 1987, with the release of the Norwegian band Mayhem's Death Crush Demo, 
Critics point to Mayhem's officially released first full-length album, De Mysterios de Satanas, as black metal's genre-defining record. But it has none of the charm of the Death Crush demo from seven years earlier. Death Crush sounds less like a band trying to make something and more like a bunch of extremely pent-up kids bashing shit around in their basement in front of blown-out microphones that just happen to be pointed toward their half-broken amplifiers. Mayhem's demo, with its lo-fi, high-energy metal recording, it doesn't sound like anything that came before it. It sounds bleak and primitive. It sounds cold. Mayhem's Death Crush is inspired and inspiring. It was the landmark black metal recording that would compel hordes of bands to come. But before the Dark Thrones and Gorgoroths of the world, a polite and unassuming Swedish teenager would fully commit himself to Mayhem's satanic nihilism. So fully that he would become the genre's first casualty, its first martyr, and its first sign of the extreme evil to come. Hey, do you love bad movies? I'm talking about movies where Jason Statham saves the day or a lifetime thriller about a killer flight instructor or basically anything made in the 1980s that was set in the not-too-distant future. Now, if all of that seems up your alley, then you are going to love the podcast, How Did This Get Made? I've been listening to this podcast, it seems like, for forever, and I keep going back to it because it is hysterical. Every episode, comedians Paul Shear, June Diane Raphael, and Jason Mansukis dissect the best, worst films ever made and their often bizarre production stories. Some of you guys are going to know Paul, June, and Jason, the host, from many of their appearances in films, animation, uh, television, on stage, these uh, improv, these guys, great, great, great comics. Uh, and they're just funny as hell. And these episodes are hysterical. They just did this episode on this cult action movie called Samurai Cop. All right, just that title alone tells you that it's going to be funny to digest. Where they, the star of this movie, of course, is a stuntman, goes to prison after filming because they stole a Rembrandt painting at gunpoint from a church. Of course, the best part of this podcast is these guys watch these movies so that you don't have to. And sometimes even they're joined by hilarious guests, Seth Rogen, Conan O'Brien. Okay, I'm not the only one who thinks this show is hysterical. What are you waiting for? Go listen to How Did This Get Made, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. 
Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership in an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Per Olin was from Sweden. He moved to Norway at the age of 19 to sing in the band Mayhem. He wasn't the band's original singer but he was, by far, its most legendary. By all accounts, Olin was a kind and sensitive kid, albeit with a very dark side. Olin was obsessed with death, with dying. He claimed he'd wanted to die ever since he was three years old. His obsession with death and black metal led him to change his name to Dead, and Dead fully committed to the role, in a way that would make most method actors feel inadequate. To prepare for Mayhem gigs, Dead would bury his clothes in the ground so that when he eventually wore them on stage, they'd have the stench of the earth on them, just as a corpse would. Before shows, he'd walk around inhaling the rotting stench of a dead bird he'd carried around with him in a bag because he wanted the smell of death in his nostrils when he performed. On stage, Dead would cut himself dousing himself and bandmates and the audience with his blood. He wore all black, and like most metalheads, he had a taste for denim, leather, studs, spikes. He painted his face white and blackened the area around his eyes to look more like a corpse. Not in a theatrical Alice Cooper or Kiss way, but in a scary as all Hallows Eve way. With Dead fronting mayhem, the band's reputation and influence grew, and Norway's black metal scene grew wings. Its pilot was Mayhem's founding guitarist, Oysten Arseth. Arseth was, by all accounts, the charismatic leader of the Norwegian black metal scene. Before founding Mayhem and Death Like Silence Productions, the record label that released Mayhem's albums, Arseth changed his name to Euronymous to complete his transformation from polite, upper-middle-class Norwegian boy into full-blown black metal god. Euronymous and Dead were joined at the hip. They were not only bandmates, they were also roommates. They listened to Motorhead and Bathory Records, talked politics, dissed poser commercial metal bands like Death Angel and Napalm Death, and plotted their band and their scenes rise to infamy. The hopes and dreams portion of their story, though, it didn't last. Dead became withdrawn. He was likely clinically depressed, but this was a time, a place, and a scene where such self-awareness was not allowed. Some believe that Dead suffered from what is known as Cotter delusion, a rare mental illness in which the affected person believes that they are dead, 
that they are actually a walking, putrefying corpse. This illness manifests after a life-threatening trauma, like the beating Dead took as a schoolboy, where he ended up in the hospital with a ruptured spleen. An experience that it has been reported left him clinically dead for a period of time. Whatever the reason, his obsession with death became all-consuming. He got his hands on some snuff films on VHS. He watched them, and then he watched them again, and again, and again. He sat alone in his room, and he cut himself. He stopped eating in an effort to obtain starving wounds. He told friends he believed that his blood had frozen in his veins, and that he was a non-human and didn't belong on Earth. That he died as a child and longed for the deep sleep he'd experienced for a brief period as a boy. On April 8, 1991, Per Olin, a.k.a. Dead, singer of Mayhem, the world's preeminent black metal band, sat down on his sofa and began to write a note. Its first words said, Excuse all the blood. When authorities found the note, Dead's blood was indeed in need of an excuse. It was everywhere. Dead had slit his wrists. Then, he slit his own throat. And somehow, after all of that, managed to fire off a shot from a shotgun directly into his forehead. Dead was dead at 22 years old. Hieronymus discovered Dead's body, and he assessed the situation with the cold dispassion of a grizzled homicide detective, and then he moved fast. Not to call authorities or family, but instead, he moved quickly out the door and down the street to purchase a camera. He hightailed it back to the apartment where Dead's exploded skull and bloodied body lie in the early stages of rigor mortis and began taking pictures. Hieronymus knew a good album cover when he saw one. He then began collecting bits of his friend's skull and brain. The shards from the skull would make for great necklaces, and the bits of brain Hieronymus would later boil down into a stew and consume so that he could claim the vaunted status of cannibal. Let's see those pussies from Napalm Death eat some brains. Fucking posers. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Dead's grisly suicide would be immortalized on the cover of Mayhem's 1995 live bootleg, Dawn of the Black Hearts. The photo is arresting. It's the type of thing you wish you could unsee, but you can't. And the irony, of course, is that this is a live album with a real-life picture of a dead guy named Dead on the cover. The album's closing track is one of Mayhem's first compositions, Pure Fucking Armageddon. In Pure Fucking Armageddon was exactly what the black metal scene was about to unleash onto Norway. To be from Norway in the early 90s and to be truly in the black metal, it meant that you had to be truly evil. The type of evil that went way beyond the B-grade horror movie lyrics from Black Sabbath. The type of evil that was much scarier than some long-haired skateboarders in baggy shorts and painter's caps listening to anthrax and crushing cans of Meisterbrow on a school night. To be truly black metal meant you had to live for death. You praised Satan, not because you really believed in Satan, 
but because it was so fucking subversive to believe in Satan. You declared war on society and all things moral, particularly Christianity. You listened to and made raw, primitive-sounding heavy metal. You had no patience for poser metal bands who didn't take death and destruction seriously. The goal for Norwegian black metalheads was to be truly evil, to completely subvert democratic morality, and to banish poser metal bands back to the punk rock ghettos they crawled out of. Euronymous and the scene he lorded over had a new charismatic personality, Varg Vikanis, a.k.a. Count Grishnak, the one-man engine behind the new, exciting black metal band, Burzum. Euronymous agreed to release Burzum's records on his Deathlike Silence Productions label, and Varg, through the strength of his Manson-esque gaze and the excitement of his fresh new band, quickly ascended to an unofficial leadership role in the fast-growing scene that now included a flock of new bands like Dark Throne, Immortal, and Enslaved. Varg was committed to the cause as Euronymous and Dead before him, but Varg's commitment infused black metal Satanism with an even more toxic and racist ethno-nationalism. Varg believed Christianity had purged Norway of its heritage by casting aside Norse tradition. He took this shit personally. Varg was out for revenge against Christians, blacks, homosexuals, posers, and basically anyone who wasn't a nihilistic, blue-eyed, pagan metalhead. Euronymous's record shop, Helvete, which in Norwegian translates to hell, served as a meeting place for himself, Varg, and other scenesters, a group that would later be called the Black Circle. But it was outside a morbid angel show in Oslo where plans came together to bring Norway to its knees in fear. Shortly after, graves were found vandalized, the home of Christopher Johnson, frontman for so-called poser death metal band Therion, had been set on fire. A note was stuck to his door with a knife. It read, the Count was here and he will come back. A homosexual man in Lilyhammer was killed randomly, stabbed over 30 times and left to bleed out in the woods behind Olympic Park. And then the fire started. The first church to go was the Fantoff Stave Church, one of Norway's historical treasures. It made national headlines. Next, the Revheim Church. Then, the home in Kolin Chapel and Ormoya Church. Satanic symbols started showing up around the sites of the burnings. Norwegians had no idea what was happening. The press covered the arsons breathlessly, and as the coverage expanded, more churches burned. The black metal rebellion was on. Norwegian black metalheads were literally carrying a torch for their scene, and black metal was no B-grade horror flick. It was full on evil, real evil, a step further than any metal scene had gone before. Band leaders became heads of arson squads, continuously trying to outdo one another. More churches burned. The Skold Church, the Hojeto Church, the Assane Church, the Sarpsborg Church. That one took the life of a firefighter. Over 30 churches had been set ablaze. The press blamed an until now unknown, unnamed, 
unimaginable clan of Satanists. There were, after all, satanic symbols discovered at the burn seeds, and who else would be desecrating graves? But authorities were slow to pounce on the Satanist theory. Some held out hope that all of the fires and the other assorted crimes were all just a big accidental coincidence. Bottom line, nobody had a clue who was behind the terror. Fear was rampant and there was no real boogeyman in sight. Not until January 1993, anyway. That's when Varg Vikernes decided he had had enough with the rumors surrounding who was behind the church burnings. The press, blindly milling about for a nameless group of Satanists was one thing, but back at Helvete, the Black Circle seemed to be giving Euronymous way too much credit for the church burnings, when Varg knew the real deal. It was he, Varg Vikernes, Count Grishnak, who spearheaded the arson effort. It was he who was putting the black metal scene onto the international map and onto the front page of Kerrang! magazine. Varg had had enough. He decided to try to cheekily set the record straight by giving an interview to a daily newspaper. In it, he claimed he knew who burned the churches and who murdered the homosexual man in Lilyhammer. It took local police about five minutes to identify Varg with his penchant for being photographed with torches, knives, chainmail, and long hair. It was easy for them to mark him as a person of interest, and it wasn't long before they were onto the entire scene, and within no time, authorities had found a Burzum flyer promoting the band's new album, aptly titled Ashes. On it, there was an image depicting the burning of Fantoff Stave Church, the flyer also had on it Varg's address. For all his high-minded, Norse-Viking, neo-racist, pseudo-intellectual horseshit, the Count sure seemed like a fucking moron. The police showed up at the address on the flyer and found him holed up with enough explosives to blast them all to hell and back. He was taken into custody before he could use them to blow up a cathedral in celebration of Mayhem's next album release. Now that's how you throw a record release party. Remarkably, Varg was released for lack of evidence. He was now the BMOC of black metal. His ego grew. So did his animosity for his friend, Euronymous, whose dabbling in cannibalism notwithstanding, Varg believed Euronymous wasn't truly evil. He thought he was soft and believed he was a closet homosexual. Furthermore, Euronymous didn't share Varg's fascist leanings. Varg was a devoted follower of Stalin and of Hitler's SS. Euronymous, despite his black metal identity, was a socialist who collected government welfare and still took money from his parents to help get by. Further complicating their relationship, Euronymous owed Varg money for unpaid Burzum royalties. Then, Varg heard a rumor that Euronymous was planning on killing him. Not just murdering him, but kidnapping him, torturing him, filming the torture, and then killing him on film. The circumstances around dead suicide 
the rumors of Euronymous's cannibalism, the church burnings, grave desecrations, rumored death of a homosexual man at the hands of someone in the scene, and the harassment of other poser metal bands, all caused Mayhem's reputation to ring out worldwide. But a snuff film showing the torture and murder of one of the scene's biggest stars, that would truly be something, true evil. Let's see Dave Mustang rub out James Hetfield on film. Megadeth, more like mega pussies. It all made sense to Varg. Euronymous was an insecure egomaniac who felt threatened by Varg's growing rep. And practically, Euronymous owed him money, so murdering him was a handy way to erase a debt. Varg was enraged. He wasn't gonna let a brown-eyed socialist closet homosexual who owed him money get over on him. Euronymous had to be confronted and fast. When Varg turned up at Euronymous's apartment unannounced at three in the morning, it was under the guise of signing his Bursum record contract. This was something that Euronymous, despite the time of night, was very keen on making happen. Bursum was one of his record label's moneymakers. Without a signed contract, there were no royalties to collect. He buzzed Varg in to let him up to his fourth floor apartment. It would prove to be a crucial mistake. Varg wasn't there to sign any papers. He was there to find out what in the fuck was going on and to put an end to this beef, one way or another. Euronymous opened the door in his underwear. And when Varg asked him about his plans to murder him, Euronymous attacked Varg, kicked him in the chest. Varg was stunned. He grabbed Euronymous and threw him to the floor. Euronymous quickly got to his feet and ran toward the kitchen. Varg assumed to grab a knife or some other sort of weapon, maybe the shotgun the dead shot himself with. Varg knew Euronymous kept it handy. The Count was not afraid. He was determined. He grabbed his own knife and took off after Euronymous, catching up to him before he could find a weapon, and Varg stabbed him. But Euronymous managed to keep moving, back toward the door and out of the apartment. He broke down the hallway, screaming for help and ringing as many doorbells as he could along the way. Varg was hot on his trail, close enough to continue stabbing him all the way down the stairwell. Euronymous could do little, but he somehow stayed on his feet. His momentum kept hurtling him down the stairs. His adrenaline kept the screams for help coming at a piercing volume. The horrific sounds kept the neighbors terrified and paralyzed in their apartments. And Varg's hate kept the stabbings coming, 22 of them, until Euronymous could run no more. His momentum slowed. He staggered to a wobbling standstill for a second or two before falling to his knees. Bloodied and gasping for breath, he looked up to face his murderer, his one-time friend and comrade in arms, Varg Vikernes, who then took his knife in both of his hands, raised it above his head, and silently called upon the great Norse gods of thunder. And with the pure Viking rage that was his lineage, Varg brought the knife down straight into the skull of Euronymous. He died instantly. Varg was arrested nine days later. An informant gave authorities all they needed on Varg for the killing of Euronymous and the church burnings. Another member of the scene, Bard Faust Ethian, drummer for the black metal band Emperor, admitted to the murder of the homosexual man in Lilyhammer's Olympic Park. 
He claimed he just wanted to see what killing a man felt like. He got eight years for killing a man in cold blood for no reason other than that the man was gay. Way to go, Norway. Pure evil with little consequence. Varg pled innocent to all the charges and turned his trial into a sideshow that no doubt made Charlie Manson proud. Playing the role of Satanist, neo-fascist, and pagan warlord, if the rebellious shoe fit, Varg wore it. In the press, they ate it all up, quickly making Count Grishnok Norway's public enemy number one. Varg Vikernes was convicted for arson for three of the 30-plus church burnings, attempted arson of a fourth, possession of illegal explosives, and the murder of Euronymous. He was sentenced to 21 years in prison, which, unbelievably, is the maximum penalty allowed in Norway for murder in arson. Amazing. Pure evil. With little consequence. Again, way to go, Norway. Norwegian black metal is bigger than ever. Second-generation bands like Gorgoroth have taken the genre far beyond the cold, dark Norwegian forest to every corner of the world. The horrors carried out by Dead, Euronymous, Varg, and others from the original black metal scene built a notorious reputation for the genre to attract new generations of followers with. Mayhem still sells records and still sells out shows. Sure, it's with one original member, and yeah, their shows these days have more in common with a Vegas review than the Dawn of the Black Hearts bootleg. But my point is that despite, or possibly because of the band's horrific acts, there is a large and active international audience for Norwegian black metal, a genre of music that was built on a foundation of murder, arson, cannibalism, and what can only be described as the most extreme form of musical rebellion to ever exist. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rockerola. He's a bad, bad man.